Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where we get into people's heads and find out how their choices in life has affected them. My name is Leslie Fear. I'm your host. So let's get into it, shall we? Hi, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Lori Neal. She's a retired nurse of 30 years, a certified life coach, a psychic consultant, intuitive, and does medium and channeling services. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you for having me. I cannot believe I got a hold of you because you are so interesting to me. You have had several near-death experiences, and I'm just going to let you kind of tell me your stories. Well, uh, as uh, we briefly discussed, I think a lot of the people that are listening may have already heard my stories because I've been on the, I jokingly call the near-death experience circuit for a while. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want to tell any new listener um, at least a brief synopsis of uh, what happened. So I did have three near-death experiences, two of them in early childhood and one uh, about four days before my 21st birthday. Wow. Okay. First one, I was five years old, and I went into kindergarten, and the public schools did a hearing test in Texas, <laughs> and they notified my mom that my hearing in the right ear did not appear to be working. Right. And that was news to them, because they thought that I just ignored them when I wasn't facing them, that I was an obstinate little kid, and I actually am a lip reader, but I thought everybody was like me, because that's how I was born. So I am deaf in my right ear. And I jokingly say that's the side I listen to the folks on the other side from, and my left ear is for the physical world. But they took me in, my dad being military, they took me in and and had a physical done, and they had my ears looked at. And the doctor said, we can't see anything, so we probably need to do surgery to see why she's deaf in this ear and see if we can correct it, because sometimes we can. And (laughs) I am at uh, Baptist Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. So anyway, they, uh, the nurse on the floor gave me Demerol and Valium as a pre-op. That's two different injections. You can't mix them, which I always thought, why do they do that? Right, I <laughs> know. Give them something that mixes, but she put one in each bottom cheek, so one in each gluteal bulb. Okay. She forgot to chart it. it down oh, no. When I went down to the OR, the nurse down there who said goodbye, that nurse took me down, dropped me off in the OR. Another nurse took me over. <laughs> And then she looked at my chart, and she was like, oh, she didn't give her the pre-op again. And she's like, that nurse upstairs just hates to give kids shots. And she stomps off, and she goes and draws up Demerol and Valium. And she comes back mm. to the little gurney I'm on, and she gives me, I tried to tell her, I've already had my shots, but I'm feeling really groggy. <laughs> I mean, woohoo, I felt it. Right. And I'm like, I've already had my shots. And she's like, honey, I know kids hate shots. And she proceeded to give me one in each arm. In each upper arm. I had band-aids on my butt cheeks, so she'd have just looked, <laughs> but she didn't. And I didn't think to tell her to look for those. So by the time I get to the OR and they decide to, you know, put the anesthesia over me, they knew I'd be sleepy, so they didn't think that was weird, but I think I was really sleepy. I do remember them telling me, you know, we're going to put the anesthesia, and at that time, that's when they still did it by mask. As soon as they did that, I had a cardiac arrest. Oh, and my goodness. There was a TV show at the time called Emergency, and they'd go out on the street <laughs> Well, from that show, I learned what a flat line on an EKG meant. Mm. And when I was out of body, I was very interested because I liked watching medical people. I already knew I wanted to be a nurse someday. (laughs) Right. And I loved the fact that when I was out of body, I could hear everybody's thoughts and keep tabs on all six conversations in their head. (laughs) And that just is craziness to me. It was So I'm so fascinated by that. But then this noise in the background is really bugging me. It's like, meh. And I'm like, what is that? You know. And finally, I look at the machine that's making the noise, and there's a flat line on it, and I realize that these people are jumping. Oh my and goodness! It's like, uh oh. 
it is not right that I'm above my body looking at it on the table. I thought it was just a weird dream. Right, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, if I'm dead, my mom is going to be so mad at these people. <laughs> and she was in the waiting room, and there's a TV on and the Brady Bunch is on. And I'm just oh, like, that's hilarious. Okay. And then I walk up to my mom, and I'm just like, Mom, Mom. And she's ignoring me. And I'm just like, Mom. And I put my hand on her shoulder to wiggle it to be like, Mom. And my hand kind of goes through her shoulder. Wow. And I'm just like, wait a minute, what? And I realize I don't have a body, and I don't have a voice, so I can't get her attention. I just sort of stood there with her, and I didn't ask to go to her. When I said to myself, my mom's going to be so mad at these people, I was just there. It's like they took me out of the OR. Just the thought of her, and you were right there. Yeah, I mean, I just said my mom's going to be mad. I didn't even say I want my mom. (laughs) I just said my mom's going to be mad at these people, and the next thing I know, I'm literally, I don't remember traveling there. I'm in one spot, and then I'm in the waiting room with her. Wow. (laughs) And so I stood there with her, kind of feeling helpless, and I saw a corpsman, you know, come out of the OR doors, and he walked up to her, and his face was white, and he's like, we got a problem. And she jumped up, and she said, what? And he said, she had a cardiac arrest on us. He said, has she ever had anesthesia before? And she's like, well, no, she's five. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And uh, he goes, well, and and he's like, we'll let you know, but I just needed to know if there was any history that we need to know of. And she's like, I don't know of any. Yeah, great bedside manner when you come out and tell the mother of the, the girl that you're working on. They had no idea why. They're like, she seemed to be a healthy little girl. It seemed like it wasn't a risk. Right. Why is this happening? And so they ran out there to say, ask if it's an allergy to anesthesia anywhere in the family so that we'll reverse that. You know what I mean? If that's sure. the case. And so, well, actually, they didn't have anything to reverse that, but they had stuff they could still try to do. They didn't have Narcan back then. Um, yeah. So they couldn't actually reverse that, but at least they would have known what they were treating. And they didn't know what they were treating. And while he's out there telling her that, and then, yes, yeah, he did leave without being able to say that everything was okay yet. Wow. Um, and so when he came back, then I, I guess I followed him in there. Or at one point while I'm watching this guy have this conversation with my mom, they used the paddles on me, and then suddenly I was back in body. You know, and then I woke up from the anesthesia. Mm. I was particularly irritated to find out that they didn't do the surgery. Did <laughs> <laughs> so I went through all that? Yeah. I was just like, you mean you guys didn't do it? And they're like, uh, no, there was a bit of a drama. The minute we put you under, and I said, oh, I know why. And they're like, why? And I said, well, and my mom's standing there. I said, I have a Band-Aid on each upper arm, and I have a Band-Aid on each butt cheek. I said, that dang nurse downstairs gave me two more shots. You actually, at five years old, told the doctors, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I couldn't even tell them. She didn't document it because that's exactly the words the nurse downstairs used. She didn't document the... <laughs> that she gave the shots. Therefore, I have to give them. Wow. Wow. My mom was just like, what? (laughs) And the people put in my records, this is called liability and cover your butt. They put that I had a reaction to anesthesia. (laughs) Wow. They never said that they overdosed me, but anyway. And two weeks later, they went back in and did the surgery. (laughs) Because <laughs> once they realized what the mistake was, like oh. she's not allergic, we overdosed her. So we went back in, and it turns out that I have more than one tympanic membrane in the right ear. That's the ear window, if anybody remembers their ear physiology. <laughs> and I can feel vibration, and I can not hear a dog whistle. Dogs don't hear a dog whistle either. They feel it. Oh, really? Multiple tympanic membranes. <laughs> Oh, okay. I love to blow a dog whistle and like tell me, you know, see me come running and tell them to stop it. So that's the ear again that I'm very sensitive to the other side and can feel vibration and energy. And then my left ear, I can hear fine. And that's, of course, the ear I have the phone up to. <laughs> right, and right. The ear that I listen to the physical world with. So that was number one. So it was a very quick situation where I was actually only in the hospital setting, saw what was happening, saw how concerned all the medical people were, how hard they were trying. 
when the doctor bent down to give me CPR, he had a cross tin in his scrub pocket. And when he bent down, the cross tin bounced onto my chest and bounced onto the floor. And I was watching the tin at first, but then it, I saw, oh my God, the doctor is kissing me. Oh, <laughs> he's doing that like a Hollywood kiss. Oh, <laughs> My mom and I had had that discussion not too long prior about strangers doing things like that. <laughs> I'm just like, here I am asleep and the other people aren't doing anything about this. They're watching him. Well, that was CPR. You know, and back in those days, we didn't have even the little mouthpiece to put on there. You just went directly mouth to mouth in those days. Right. I started doing breath. I mean, you had no idea at five years old what they were doing. So how could you have known? I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, you know, I guess I hadn't seen that on emergency yet. But when we went to the follow-up appointment with the doctor, you know, after the second surgery, I looked at my mom and I was like, you know, there is something we need to talk about with him. And she's like, really? And I have this brave look on my face and he's like, okay, what's up? I said, well, mom, during the first surgery, he gave me like a long kiss. And my mom looked at him like, what? And he looked at me like, what? And I said, you bent over and your, your cross tent fell out of your pocket and bounced onto the floor when you bent down to kiss me. And that's when he looked at me and he's like, oh, my God. He said, that's when I gave you CPR. Oh, my God. And the only reason he'd remember it was because later, when he went to document the surgery, right? we didn't have computers back then, he, his pen was missing. And he liked that pen. It was engraved. It was a gift. So he had to go find it. And he went and found it on the OR floor and realized it must have come out when I bent over. That's incredible. It really is, because I was grateful that something happened to at least flag him that, you know, how would Lori know that? Exactly. My mom was just like, I don't even know what's going on, but is she fine? Yeah, okay, good. Look, we're, we're ready to go. <laughs> right. She was mad at him. I mean, you know how of course. feel about somebody who, quote, killed her daughter the first time, and then I, I marveled until I asked my parents years later, I said, you know what stuns me? I said, you guys took me back in two weeks later and handed <laughs> me over to the same people. I was going to bring that up, and I thought, well. I wanted to know what was wrong with your ear and if they could fix it, and that's who the military would pay. So this is is actually a civilian hospital because, you know, the military one there, I guess, I don't know why, but they'll, they'll just either send you to a military place or civilian. So that brings us to near-death experience number two, which was the most life-changing one. I was seven years old, two months before I was going to turn eight. So this would be October. Okay. Um, and I had blood in the urine on a physical, again, a school physical. They do the dip and on a dip, which, you know, that little stick that you do on the urine, Right. Empty blood and protein and this and that, or sugar. And so they kept saying, you know, she, she always has blood on the dip. And, of course, I'm way too young to have a menstrual cycle or something. So, like, that's not normal to have blood in your urine. My parents were like, oh. <laughs> so they said to my parents, you know, we need to do a kidney biopsy to see what's going on with her kidneys. And they're like, okay. And they read the record. It's like, oh, she's allergic to anesthesia. Okay, we'll just give her a local. Oh, no. I'm not allergic to anesthesia. And they're like, yes, you are. Miss, never mind. I mean, I'm seven, right? They're not going to listen to me. History wise, like, mom, tell them I'm not allergic to anesthesia. And she looks at them and she's like, she's had a bad reaction to anesthesia. (laughs) I'm like, why would you say that? She looked at me and she goes, I don't want them to risk it again. I mean, I can understand, but yes, I know. Yeah, Yeah, she's like, I don't want to risk it again. So I'm awake for this kidney biopsy because they did a local on my back. So uh, I'm at Wilford Hall Hospital on Lackland Air Force Base there uh, outside San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And since it is a teaching hospital, one doctor is going to teach another doctor how to do a kidney biopsy. They don't come up very often. So this is exciting. Great. And yeah. so uh, Dr. Delimas is teaching Dr. Sexton how to do a biopsy. And as he's advancing the needle, he accidentally pushes the button that brings out the blade to sort of get the biopsy. But he's still trying to travel to the kidney. He's not there yet. He's actually somewhere near the liver, oh, um, the, uh, no. near the blood supply for the liver. And he accidentally, when he cuts, 
that either uh, cuts that artery or that vein. I, I think it must have been an artery. Because it was something that they're like, we can't fix that. Uh-oh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you can't sew an artery. <laughs> so I'm awake, and I'm watching everything on an ultrasound screen because it's ultrasound guided to get to the kidney. And all of a sudden, they're putting my teddy bear up in front of my face. And I'm like, get that out of the way. I'm watching the screen. And I'm like, hey, what's all that ink flowing all over the screen? It's like, that's getting in the way. And oh, my gosh. Like, oh my God. And she's awake watching herself bleed on the screen and saying, what's all that? And they keep trying to distract me. And I'm getting ticked because I really want to see what's happening. And I can tell they're getting upset. They said, you know what? Keep advancing. Get the kidney biopsy. And let's get out of here. So he does. They, they somehow do it blindly, I guess, because we couldn't see anything on the screen anymore once the blood kind of obliterated it. They get the biopsy, they pull out, they take me to recovery. They go out to my mom, who had been told, this is an easy outpatient procedure. Don't let her eat in the morning, have her come in, leave, and then she'll be fine. She can resume regular activity when she goes home. They sat my mom down and like, she needs to be on bed rest for two days when she goes home. The artery did clot, and that'll heal itself as long as you don't break that clot. They didn't tell her that. Mm. They didn't tell her. And so we're on our way home, and I'm like, so I was watching it on the screen, and then all of a sudden, all this ink started spreading all over the screen. And then they put my teddy bear in front of me and wouldn't let me see it anymore. And I said, and then the other doctor took over. <laughs> Once that accident happened, yes, the other doctor did it, which is probably why he could do it blind, because he was a kidney specialist for many years. Right. I, and so I explained how Dr. Sexton was learning. He screwed up. The other doctor takes over. And my mom is like, Lori, you were on medication that kind of made you woozy. You know, I mean, I had a vivid imagination, so she's like, this is a little kid. She's on. It didn't happen. So we go home, and she puts me on bed rest up in my bedroom. We had a balcony off of the second floor and a tree, a big oak tree that I could climb down. Right. After she checked me in. She went downstairs to do whatever she was doing, and I decided to get up and leave my room through the balcony door, climb down the tree, and go play with my friends. Great. Perfect. <laughs> I have a friend spend the night. We wake up the next morning. Or actually, she did. She's like, ah! <laughs> I was like, what's wrong? And she says, look. And I'm realizing that everything's all sticky. Like, my, my gown is stuck to me. Everything's sticky. Oh, no. I had hemorrhaged in the bed overnight. Oh, my goodness. Like a crime scene. And it was on her, too. And she's just horrified. She jumps out of bed. She runs back home next door. I go to my mom, wake her up, and I'm like, Mom, Mom. And my mom wakes up and looks at me and sees blood all over my gown. I mean, practically dripping. And she's like, oh, my God. And she jumps up, and she puts me in our little Renault. And she went 120 miles an hour on those straight Texas freeways. Yeah. She wasn't calling an ambulance. She's like, we're gone. Right. No, you can't wait. <laughs> it's crazy because it was a Monday. It was raining, and the song Rainy Days and Mondays came on the radio. And I was trying to tell my mom, I'm like, isn't that interesting? You were very like, it's smart. It's a rainy day and it's a Monday and the carpenters are singing. I mean, you, and my uh, mom looks at me like, oh my God. You know, she's almost giddy. She's lost so much blood. And we get there and uh, we run into the emergency room. You know, my mom's telling them that she had a kidney biopsy at this facility two days ago. I don't know what's going on here, but get those kidney guys in here now. They call those guys who were in like a shot. <laughs> and they came into the ER and my mom said, so Lori was describing that you were teaching Dr. Sexton how to do this. And they're like, yes, ma'am, that, that is true. And she said, so what happened? And they're like, well, we nicked a little artery. Oh, yeah, and, no uh, big deal. We didn't think it was a big deal, but that's why we told you to put her on bed rest. And I was like, why didn't you tell me this at the time? And they said, we didn't want you to be overly concerned. I mean, it, it should be fine. And she's like, it doesn't look fine. And they're starting to give me blood. You know, they're starting to do blood transfusions. Mm. And back then, they only type and cross-matched you. They didn't test it for anything. They right. just made sure it was your blood type. So they're, you know, giving me blood, and I'm losing blood. 
And while I'm sitting on a, a metal bedpan in the emergency room, we hear a clink. Mm. And it's like, uh, <laughs> what was that? And this is all, by the way, the blood is coming from my urethra. So from the tube that your urine comes from. Oh, my goodness. So that's where all this blood is coming from. And that, and that came through there, too, which is not really made for anything metal. No, so it's like, not. Oh, I don't know what that was. But when it went plink, the doctors looked in the bedpan and they just grabbed it and left. And my mom's like, wait a minute, what was that? And one turned around and said, we think she just passed a stone, you know. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, years later I was told that that was actually a piece of the equipment. I was just going to ask you that. Oh, my God. The biopsy equipment, yeah. It was like there was a little screw that held this biopsy needle on it or something. I don't know. But, yeah, it was. And so once I passed that, then I kept bleeding and they kept transfusing me and they took me up to the uh, ICU. And then they, uh, I had a nurse up there who was wearing a military uniform. I loved their nurses' dresses. <laughs> Aww. And she would sit down and whisper in my ear, thinking I was dying. She's like, you're going to grow up, and you're going to wear this exact uniform one day because she knew how much I loved her dress. I did, many years later, work civil service where they let civilians wear the military uniform. Aww. And they still had the same style of dress. So I think that a lot of nurses are very intuitive people. I think they don't know why they say the things they say to their patients who are dying. Right. And I think they're surprised when they make it. <laughs> And she was. But two weeks later, I got up and I had white stool and yellow eyes. And I was like, Mom, I don't feel good. And she's like, oh, my gosh. Back to Wilford Hall, I had hepatitis B from the blood transfusion. Oh, no. And they're just like, this happens, you know. We had to transfuse her quickly. We don't even know whose blood we gave her. So now we got to treat that. And the first thing they do is put me in an isolation room. So Mm, everybody mm -hmm. who came in the room had a heavy white cotton neck to floor down on a heavy white cotton hat and well a mask like we see today so then i'm in you know an isolation room in wilford hall and they pull my mom out and they talk to her and she comes back in looking a little emotional and i was like what's wrong and she said <laughs> she just looked at me she was always honest and she said they don't know what's going to happen um and then she started crying she said they said you might not make it oh, and, I was like, no. <laughs> and she said she said i don't i don't believe them but she said you know that could happen and what they had told her was if I did die, they weren't going to resuscitate me because I had hepatitis and my liver was being ruined and that we didn't have liver transplants. So if they revived me, that was just to bring me back to have a miserable death because I was already nauseated and just feeling like crap. Oh, my gosh. So she's like, they're not going to res- resuscitate her? And I said, that'd be cruel. So she just came back in and she's like, so she does survive. What then? Like, well, then she'll have hepatitis B, which is another problem. And so my dad, in the meantime, he's Air Force, and he's, he was actually on the United States wrestling team, the Olympic team. So uh, in this near-death experience, that night my mom is in the room with me with all that gown and all that junk on, and she's so ticked off. She just stands up and takes it off because it was making me sad. You know, I was like, that, you look like a monster. <laughs> and uh, she said, what do you want to do? And I mean, she's emotional. My dad, the military actually sent a helicopter to California to get my father, and my brother was with him because of my hospitalization. So. <laughs> And they were trying to find him to bring him back so that, you know, he could be there. Um, so it's weird how sometimes I feel the emotion and other times I don't. I know, <laughs> so I, just I know. feel it today. And uh, so she's sitting there with me, and I said, oh, I want you to rub my back and sing a lullaby like we do every night. Oh, because my goodness. That's a weird question. What do you mean, what do I want to do? <laughs> we can't leave this room, so there's not a lot of choices. So she did. She was rubbing my back and uh, singing lullaby. She, she used to sing a song lullaby. And she said as soon as she was done singing... <laughs> Uh, a deep voice came out of my body and said, you understand why your daughter has to leave, don't you? Oh, my gosh. She's like, what? And she's like, why is she talking like that? 
And she said, again, a voice that just did not sound like mine said, you understand why your daughter's leaving? And my mom was like, well, I'll humor this. No, I don't. And so I turned over and I looked at her and said, this little girl just resists the physical a lot. And then the next thing I know, I'm out of body. But this time, I'm already with my mom, so I don't need to go find her. I, I had been told that I was terminal. Right, so when a right. opened up, I took off. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm in it. And when I got through, I come out, and I'm in what would be, I think, Lori's ideal setting. You know, in this lifetime, I love to be in the mountains. I like wildflowers, you know, water close by, big pine trees, you know. Big sure, sure. On. You know, it's my ideal. And there's this man walking towards me, and I'm like, ah, oh, that must be Jesus. <laughs> right. Um, and when he walks up, I'm like, well, he didn't look like the depictions of Jesus. And I'm like, are you Jesus? And his blue eyes are so entertained. He's like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, well, where's Jesus? I mean, you know, like everybody told me Jesus is going to be here. And I was kind of offended, right? I was kind of wanting to meet Jesus. And he said, uh, he said, I meet children and animals who don't have anybody to greet them. And he's looking at me kind of like, it's just a tad of irritation. And I'm like, wow. what do you mean? And he said, sometimes people die, and they don't have anybody here that they know. He said, do you know your grandma's sister? And I think I was going to meet her later that year. I hadn't met her yet. Her name was Edie. Mm-hmm. And I said, no. And he shrugged his shoulders, and he said, see, you always die before everybody else you know dies. He said, your grandparents are still alive, your parents, your aunts, your uncles. He said, nobody you know has even died yet, Lori. And he's giving me this look, and I'm just like, why are you, like, mad at me? And he said, because you do this every time. Wow. And then he waved his arm, and all of a sudden there's all these little kids and, like, infants in the field next to us, and then three adults standing kind of behind the kids. And I'm looking at that like, well, how'd you do that? (laughs) Right. You know, who are these people? And he looked at me like, really? And I looked at him again, and finally I caught the eyes of a baby. You know, I looked into the eyes, and I was like, oh. And I looked at him and I said, we don't believe in past lives. <laughs> right. Yeah. Who's we? And I said, the Baptists, we don't believe in past lives. And he's like, these are your past lives. And he said, do you see like, what the problem is here? And I was just like, no. And he said, you don't go to adulthood very often in your lifetimes. You escape at the first opportunity every time. Wow. And I'm watching this Native American man who I thought looked 80 years old. Turns out he was 52, but, you know, the planes were tough on him back then. Right. Um, And uh, this French girl who was 18 or 19 years old. And then (laughs) my most recent past life was a New Yorker named Karen who died on October 30th of 1960 in New York City. Oh, wow. So that one was more familiar. That one is almost like, you know, (laughs) I don't like her. (laughs) Really? Really? And I had no idea why. And it was because she had done something in her lifetime that Lori would one day pay for in the far future. Oh, okay. Little Lori had no idea. So I just like, I don't like her. (laughs) And, but, you know, he says to me, he said, you keep doing this. And he said, in this lifetime, you have nice parents. You have a sweet brother. He's like, what do you hate about your life? And I looked at him and I said, I think you're mistaken. I said, I got hepatitis B from a blood transfusion. I'm a victim here. And he's like, I'm talking to your soul. I'm not talking to Lori. Oh, wow. When he said that, I was like, I was aware that on some level I was responsible for choosing to die and for trying to get myself in this situation because there's no such thing as coincidence. And and it's a karmic kind of thing is what you... Exactly. It was just like it's... And so... And, and once I heard that, I was like, you know, you're right. It is a good life. 
I mean, there was nothing wrong with it. I didn't have any complaints, except for obviously my health. So I think I'm just ready to go to the light. And they do give you the choice. So I right. tell him, I want to go to the light. He says, all right. He's literally wearing that burlap robe, rope for a doll with a little flap on the top around his shoulders. Wow. Like the guy in the statues in everybody's garden. Wow. He was bald on top, and that's why I knew for a fact he wasn't Jesus. He's never depicted as bald on top. <laughs> that's true. That's true. With his hair around the crown. And, of course, yes, the animals did like him. I mean, they were surrounding him while we sat in the forest, which I, whatever. <laughs> I was just, com- you know, on the conversation. But it does turn out that St. Francis, is, it's a soul like anybody else. He's incarnated since then, and he had incarnated before that. But that's just a role that he takes on. It, especially if you have any uh, history, and if one of those past lives that were adults had been Catholic, <laughs> maybe they, you know what I mean, maybe there was history there. And he's not my past life, I know that. And so we decide to go through the light, and I'm walking behind St. Francis, and I'm perceiving that we're going upwards towards what I had assumed earlier was the sun, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was the light. And as you're going into the light, you realize this is just a combination of every individual soul's lights put together in one big ball. Wow. That's why they say God's in everybody, because if you have a soul, and if you have life in a physical world, you have to have a soul. Everything with life has a soul. And as we're going, all of a sudden, St. Francis stops, but I didn't realize it, and I kind of went through him, which I remembered, you don't really have a body, even though you feel like you do, from my previous experience with my mom trying to grab her shoulder. Right. So I turned around and looked up at him, and he's looking at the light with this kind of a funny grin on his face. And I realized they're having some communication that I can't hear. And, you know, we weren't talking like you and I are anyway. It's kind of telepathic. Right. I'm a little irritated because they basically, you know, let me out of what is being said. And then St. Francis looks down at me, and I just remember that his eyes (laughs) looked like the Santa on the Coke can at Christmas. These laughing blue eyes that that artist really captured. Right. And he looked down at me. They're almost watering. He's laughing so hard. And he's like, so much for free will. Oh, because they gave me the choice. Do you want to go back? I said, no, we're heading into the light. <laughs> wow. The next thing I know, I wake up in the hospital room with my mom, and she's laying across me, and she's just kind of, she's done sobbing, and she's just sort of laying there. <laughs> right. She hasn't called anybody because she knows they're not going to revive me anyway, and she's really pissed that my, my dad and brother didn't make it. And I roll over, and I'm like, get off of me. <laughs> she's like, what? And then she looks at me, and she looks in my eyes, and she's just like, oh, my gosh. And I said, what? And she said, your eyes aren't yellow anymore, the whites of my eyes. And I was like, that's good. And we looked at my skin, and we're like, that's not yellow either. Then she jerks the covers down, and she looks at my tummy, and she's like, it's not distended anymore. Wow. And uh, so uh, we see the liver's not distended anymore, and she's like, how do you feel? And I said, I, I actually feel good. And she's like, all right, let's go. She's like, pack your bags. <laughs> As we're packing, they bring a gurney outside the door and uh, come to get me. And I think a nurse had been peeking in the room and, and knew that something had happened and knew that I'd probably died. And so they were giving my mom some time to grieve. Right. And they were bringing the journey to say, hey, it's time for us to take her. Well, they come in the room, and there I am sitting up, and they see my mom packing my little suitcase. And they're like, what's going on in here? And she's like, she feels better, and we're going home. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, they said, ma'am, you actually cannot leave this hospital room. Or you can, but she cannot. Because hepatitis B is a communicable disease. So I'm sorry, we're going to have to do some testing and, you know, like, you know, just sit your butt down. And uh, my mom was like, she's my child. I can take her home. And they said, you can't under these circumstances. And she said, look at her. Her eyes aren't yellow. Her skin's not yellow. And most importantly, her liver is not distended. And they were just standing there like, 
Okay, that's that's weird. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, There's impossible. no way I didn't yeah. have hepatitis B. It was lab verified more than once. Because, <laughs> of course, they were trying to find the strain and figure out where I got it and blah, 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 and find, you know, cross-match the other blood, see if anybody else had more blood like that. And then they brought in a team of doctors and all the students, like nine people in lab coats come in this little isolation room. And one of the doctors happened to be Jewish. <laughs> and my mom was like, she talked weird, then she, she did quit breathing for a little while, and, and then later on, she started breathing again, and she turned over in bed, and this is how I found her. You know, she, her eyes aren't yellow anymore. Her skin's not yellow. I want to go home. And the doctor's like, well, that's enough to make me believe in Jesus. And I'm like, you don't believe in Jesus? And he, my mom's like, I'll, I'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but then, you know, they did some tests. They drew my blood. They went down to the lab, and it did not have hepatitis in it anymore, and it didn't even have antibodies to hepatitis, and that's not physically possible. That is amazing and crazy and wonderful and scary at the same time. Well, the Baptist said that was a miracle, and she prayed for it, and she didn't doubt that she got it. So that was good enough. Wow. I was like, I knew that they had sent me back and they fixed it because they had told me they could when they were asking me if I wanted to get back in. And I said, for what? They said, my liver is ruined. They're like, we can fix that. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Uh, of course, I have to condense this because the time frame that I thought I was up there talking to St. Francis and the light, right. I thought I was up there for three years because they let me ask every question that I could think of. And I was seven, so I didn't think of as many as I wish I had. But when I woke up, the first thing I asked my mom was, how old am I? And really? Like, oh, no. She's brain damaged. <laughs> she's like, you're seven, and you're going to be eight in two months, just like yesterday, you know? And I was like, I am still only seven? And she's just like, oh, no, she's ruined. And I couldn't explain to her. I thought I was talking to those two guys for like three years. <laughs> wow. I was like, okay. And they said, we really are all human, right? We're all from the same tribe of, of God, whatever. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, I mean, so, yeah, I got the message of unity, um, the meaning of life, which is that it's a classroom, the earth plane. It's where you come down to not being in control of the outcome, like you are when you're on the other side. When you're in the in-between, between lifetimes, without a physical body, you can create physical constructs that feel as real as our life does in the physical world. Oh, wow. And, you know, they're like, you know, of course we don't sit up here and play harps on the cloud. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I was like, well, it was a thought. You know, it's always depicted that way, right? And they said no. And, for example, my grandparents, who died like six years apart, but my grandmother waited for my granddad to get up there, and they would sometimes recreate portions of their life but make the ending the way they wanted it to be. You know what I mean? Like the hard situations. Right. And they're like, it's just fun. And it's just us being us again and getting to revisit what it was like to be a young couple. You know, all that. (laughs) Wow. That's kind of cool. And then my grandmother came back as my great nephew. And my grandfather came back as my granddaughter. And my parents rolled their eyes every time I just, (laughs) like at Christmas, make some reference to their past life right in front of them. And you can see that in eyes? I mean, can you, how do you know, how do you, in, on a soul level, how do you know? Okay, so the eyes are the window of the soul. First of all, since I can hear the dead, they tell me where they're going, and then I look in their eyes. Well, I will get through it. And let's talk about your work, because you are a certified life coach. You do um, the intuitive work. Or any situation where somebody gets out of body through extreme stress, anytime you're out of body, whether you have the silver cord attached or not, you are opening up the door to the other side. Um, I was in a bad car accident in 1993 that rearranged my face. Oh, wow. And I had nine surgeries over six years to rebuild what I have. And that's when I sat home a lot and uh, did study with the people upstairs to get qualified to do what I do now. Okay. <laughs> so I opened that door up a little wider with my near-death experiences. 
My 30 years in nursing and talking to other NDEers made me very confident that this was real. And so in my nurse career, I would start to get known as the psychic nurse because I'd put a blood pressure cup on somebody. And if my blood sugar was low or I had a little extra time or we were bantering, I would start doing a reading without being asked, which is awkward. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people were going to be going boundaries and I would try to explain to them, Lori doesn't get to choose. I'm not the one crossing your boundary even though it's my body and my mouth. There's a higher power that I have no control over that jumps in and says to my last nursing job, I was the occupational health nurse brings and I took care of police officers and firefighters and they were injured on the job. Wow, that's incredible. officer that kept getting injured. (laughs) I put the blood pressure cuff on. It's his third injury in three months, different, you know, spots. And I said, if you weren't having an affair with your mind on that and keeping all your lies straight, you would not keep getting injured on the job. Oh. And he looked at me and he's like, what? <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, uh, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know what to say either. <laughs> He's like, I just, he said, I just felt like you were confronting me. And I said, I wasn't. I said, I just, sometimes when I touch people, sometimes this happens. And I, I looked at him and I said, this is embarrassing, but like, are you having an affair? And he was like, I thought you knew. And I said, well, you know, I, I couldn't explain to people that I channel your soul. I mean, that just wasn't going to go over in a medical clinic. Right, right. Um, but the bottom line was is it, it started to get into each of my jobs enough that by the time patients kept calling me to ask me things that wasn't about their MRI results or whatever, my bosses would get mad. So, like, you know, you can't be on the phone that much. You need to just stick with the job. And they were right. So a doctor that I used to work for that I love very much had crossed over, and he said, Lori, you don't belong in a medical clinic. He said, this is just a prerequisite for the work you're going to start doing now. And you do so much good work for so many people, Lori. I mean, Aww. just just our conversation before we started recording, um, you confirmed so many things that I, there's no way you could have known about my life, and you, you just blurted it out, and I was like, how do you know this? How do you? I, I, it's, you know what, so that's scary to people, right? There's also people who have secrets that don't want to be in my space, you know? I mean, and then there's, of course, others who are like, not only do I like that, I'll pay you for it, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a double-edged sword, which is a phrase I use a lot. Uh, as I said earlier, it's like every single thing that happens in the physical world, you can name a good thing that came from it and a bad thing that came from it. Right, Everything. right, right. No, <laughs> and that's so frustrating. So the work I do is I do... Connecting with somebody's soul or higher self, it's really the same thing. Right. And when you're getting advice about your life, it's great if a crossover mother wants to give some advice. But if your mother and your own soul say two different things, I look at somebody and say, okay, here's the deal. Your mom loves you very much, and that's her strong opinion. But your soul is the architect of your life. They are the puppeteer to your puppet. I do what they say. And they're just like, okay. Um, And, you know, some people do whatever they're going to do. But that is where you get advice. And uh, the problem with channeling for real is that a lot of times you tell people what they don't want to hear. Right, right. For years, I said, I'm not leaving nursing to tell somebody what they don't want to hear, and then them not want to pay me. Right. Well, (laughs) and and I have to make a living. You know, they're just laughing and saying, this will all work out fine. And it has, but I did resist leaving nursing to do this work. I like my paid holidays. I love the police officers and firefighters and other city employees. Right. Uh, The hours were nice. I didn't want to leave. And now, what am I supposed to do? Go put up a website and do the work I'm doing? I was like, this, this is no way. <laughs> and that's when something came along. And they said, Lori, do you believe in God and that you work for God? And I said, I, I have to. I just, yeah. And they said, all right. We put that out there so that the people who do need to work with you, they will want to speak to you and they will do work. I have been doing the work for 10 years. Sometimes I book out, you know, 7 to 14 days in advance. 
Right. So it's all working out now. They were right. And that's what my soul said. And everybody listen. When your inner voice keeps telling you to change something, especially as big as your job or your marriage or something huge, and it never goes away, listen to them. Because if you don't, they're going to put you on a reset. Lori wouldn't leave nursing. Lori left nursing. Right. Because, you know, life is too short just to keep crying about what happened in the past and how much it affected you. And honestly, it's ego to hang on to your victimhood. Right, right. But but if we go back to how do you work? Like, does somebody get a hold of you? And what can you... I do all my work on the phone. When I first left nursing, I had an office in downtown Colorado Springs. You know, had it set up to where people could come and see me there. But a lot of people would want to talk to me after I did some talks about indie, you know, near-death experiences. And I I, uh, I used to be a member of IAMS, you know, the, the big group for indie years. Right. And so once I did those talks, people would call me and say, you know, I want a reading. And I'd be like, well, are you going to come to Colorado Springs? And they're like, well, no, I can't fly there. Can you do it on the phone? And I was thinking, I probably can't do it on the phone. I like to look at people, right? And, right. And something upstairs was like, you can do it on the phone. So I said, all right, I'll try it, you know, for the first few well, I'm actually far more accurate on the phone because I am on five acres of lodgepole pine here in Colorado, mm. uh, and the only energy is me and my dog. So if I did readings at the office I used to rent, I had a dentist next door, I had a massage therapist across the way, I could pick up all those people's energy too, and I had to weed through that to just work with the energy of my client. No, it makes sense. When I'm at home, there's no energy to weed through. <laughs> right, right. So clear. So yes, people call me on my landline. Uh, unfortunately, cell phones will often disconnect during a reading. But if people only have a cell phone, I just make a deal with them. When we disconnect, I'm going to do an instant redial. Just pick up, and I'm going to go right from where I, I'm not, like, don't take me out of my rhythm. Right, <laughs> so right. Finish the sentence. Or if you're the one speaking when we get disconnected, you finish your sentence, and we'll move on. And if I control my energy very carefully, I can keep it from breaking the, the cell phone. A lot of people want to Skype reading or Zoom or all these ways, you know, to do online meetings where they can actually see me and I can see them. And we try that. And as soon as I start channeling, the computer will go blue screen. And that's not good for your computer. They die if that happens too many times. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I just can't do that. You know, so I somehow creates this mystery. But I tell people, if you really want to see me, put my name into YouTube You'll see the talks I did in Denver, you know, uh, about NDEs. It talks about, like, what I'm talking about with you, my near-death experience stories. And the fun thing about those is then they open it up to audience questions. So that's why people will keep coming to the same talk, because they say it's the audience questions I come for. Everybody else asks you something different. Right, right. No, and it's true. It really is, because there's so many wonderful people out there that, that want the answers, that, that need answers. And, you know, they're, they're grieving or whatever it is. You were so wonderful to me. And just, just the small amount of time we talked before we started recording. Wow, you were amazing. It was just incredible. Let, tell everyone how they can find you. Oh, okay. Well, my website, yoursoulhastheanswers.com. Now, the main mistakes people make is they'll misspell soul, which is S-O-U-L. They'll accidentally spell it like the bottom of the feet. <laughs> right. <laughs> S-O-U-L. And then, uh, or they will lose the S on answers. You know, they'll just make answer, not plural. So I, when I'm giving out my website, I say, your soul has the answers. And uh, that has all my numbers. It's got a cell phone and a landline. I do suggest people try to reach me on my landline because these lodgepole pines on my property make my cell phone have terrible service out here. So it's a much longer response time when they decide to text me or call myself. Oh, well, you know what? I'm going to put it in my show notes um, and, and I'll put all of your information and your website, everything on my show notes so that if anyone wants a reading from you, 
Guys, she's incredible. And there's just something about her, her having, unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe having died and come back and has such an insightful, intuitive way to talk to whoever is on the other side or whoever is somebody that you may or may not want to talk to. She's the person to talk to. She's amazing. They don't want to hear what the other person on the other side has to say. I mean, I can chase them off. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you have been one of my favorite guests. I am so happy. Thank you. I got to talk to you today. And uh, Lori, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Oh, you are so welcome. Thank you for having me, Leslie. I hope that we get to do it again sometime. If you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review. It'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen. Also, I am a novelist and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on Amazon.com, so check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support, and I'll talk to you next week.